0: I'm worried that the way that we talk about porn to men is having the same effect as the way we used to talk about purity culture to girls. I think the way we talk about porn to guys is like, if you have watched porn, you will never have proper sexuality.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Untangled Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Fritz, and this is a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. so glad you're here this week. I'm chatting with Sheila Gregoire, author of the best-selling book, The Great Sex Rescue. We're chatting about her new book and some of the ways women and men have been impacted by problematic messaging in well-intentioned Christian marriage and sex resources. Today, I'm happy to welcome Sheila Gregoire back to the Untangled Faith podcast. She was one of the first people I interviewed when I started the podcast a year ago. Side note, I just celebrated the first anniversary of the podcast on April 14th. Sheila's new book, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, released about a month ago, giving us a great excuse to have her back on the podcast. I don't remember, had you already written A Guy's Guide to Great Sex before as a companion to the women's book? No. Or is this this new?
0: So, the women's book was out in 2012. Okay. And then my publisher approached me to write the guy's guide. And I was like, okay, but can we please rewrite the good girl's guide? And it took a while. They had to go through several committees to get approval because the book was selling well. And so yeah. they were like, why fix something that isn't broken? And I'm like, it's broken. <laughs>
1: Let's talk about that. You learned things since 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really think that is such, there's a lot of integrity in saying, I have something out in the world, it's selling well, but I feel like it needs, we need to do something about it. We need to make some changes. To reiterate this, Sheila had a book that was selling well. It was making money. This is no easy feat in the publishing world. And even though it was doing well, Sheila had concerns about some of the things in her book. 2022 Sheila has learned some things that 2012 Sheila didn't know. And she wanted to make sure that what she put into the world was helpful and not harmful. It takes guts to do this for an author and for a publisher.
0: Yeah. You know, um, when we wrote the great Six rescue, we made this 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality teaching so there were 12 markers of healthy sexuality and we graded um the 13 best selling sex and marriage books that we looked at on that rubric and like the gift of sex by the penner scored 47 out of 48 so really good it was very possible to score well love and respect scored 0 and if i had graded the old good girls guide it probably would have scored like i think 46 My co-author, Joanna, thinks she would have given it a 48. Like, it would have scored well. But just because it scored well didn't mean it was perfect. Like, I did mention High Drive Wives. Okay. And you got a point. If you merely mentioned it, (laughs) but I didn't really explain it very well. Even though I mentioned things like uh, that sex is for intimacy, it's not just, just, you know, for pleasure or whatever, I still very much focused on the gendered idea that, you know, men – need sex to feel loved and women need to feel loved before they have sex. And I just focused on a very gendered approach to sex Mm -hmm. and how men were more visual. I just focused on a very gendered view, how men need sex to feel loved. Women need to feel loved to have sex. Men are more visual. Women just like cuddling and you need to be talked into having sex. And I I just didn't like the way that I talked about it and i felt like i didn't talk enough about consent although i did mention it and i there was just i i just wasn't happy with a lot of it yeah. i felt it was kind of reinforcing some purity culture shame in some places
1: yeah and while some of those stereotypes actually play out it's good for you to acknowledge that there is a range of you mm-hmm. know people's experience when it comes to desiring sex and how they you know, how people are not everybody is wired exactly the same way. So mm-hmm. I really am grateful that you acknowledge that. Yeah, I,
0: I just think that a lot of the harm that's been done is that we put people in boxes. And <laughs> I have spoken to so many women who are the hired drive wife and they had to go into counseling soon after they were married because they felt like our marriage is really wrong Mm. because he didn't want sex. And there wasn't porn use. There wasn't like lots of reasons. Sometimes men don't want sex because of nefarious reasons like, yeah, porn use or psychological issues or whatever. But these guys just had normal, they were, they were normal. They were just on the lower end of libido and their wives were on the higher end. And this was seen as a really big problem because of the way we've talked about it in church. And so I think reframing it from women are like this and men are like this to Let's just talk about how we handle different drives, you know, is is a much
1: healthier approach. If you don't fit into that stereotypical box, it doesn't mean that something is broken in one or the other Mm -hmm. of you. Exactly. At one point in our conversation, I asked Sheila about a question a friend of mine had posed about her naming of the woman's version of this book that came out in 2012, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I wanted to talk to her about her thoughts on using the word girl to refer to women in some situations, using that word can serve as a way to diminish women in a way that we would never refer to grown men.
0: When I first wrote the book in 2012, that was just as purity culture was ending. And a lot of a lot of the issues that women were having with sex were are very different than women who are getting married today. The emphasis that I put in the original version, which actually worked <laughs> back then. Was you know you may think of yourself as a good girl because women growing growing up mm. in purity culture they were trying to stay good girls they were trying to be the good Christian girl, and what I was trying to say is you know what good Christian girls are allowed to really like sex yeah you know and that's that's the idea I was trying to get across and it
1: wasn't about so much calling women girls and you know no
0: and so in this one you know when I had to redo it I'm like oh, I can't change the title so I spent the first I spent the first chapter explaining what I meant. And because we did want we did want the parallelism with the guys book, you know, mm-hmm. the good guys guide to great sex. So, but again, you know, these things, you do something which works in a particular year, but then <laughs> 10 years later, it just doesn't yeah. fit in the same way. But I'm excited about the book. I, I really like the revamp and I really like the guy's guide. I think yeah. the guy's guide is probably, well, great sex rescue is probably still my favorite book, but the guy's guide, I think. Is is very good, and if every newly married guy could get a hold of it, I think it could change a lot of
1: marriages. (laughs) Yeah, I've been looking through it, and it is super easy to read. I mean, you know, I've been married since two thousand and three, so I'm not like going to be embarrassed by reading it. But even if I wasn't, I feel like it's done just so straightforward, and like there's like let's take some of the mystery out of this, and it really addresses. Like the nuts and bolts of all the things that guys might not even have had any conversation about that they need to know. Getting to know your spouse is going to be your lifelong journey that you do. But this mm. gives such a great head start to people. There are a lot of things we just take for granted when it comes to the sort of conversations that we have. So, super easy read, uh, I would say. Uh, if if you're doing premarital counseling, if you're somebody that counsels people getting ready to get married, and you're like thinking, what even is a good book these days yeah. to suggest <laughs> to people? What is okay? Uh, this is this is great. I think people are gonna feel really good about it. But you put a, an equation early on in the book about this, <laughs> plus this plus this plus this plus this plus this equal um, equal good sex, and I I wrote it down. What was it? There was a lot of things in it. Yeah. Emotional health, physical health, relational security, emotional connection, physically satisfying sex. All of those things lead to actually wanting sex. Mm -hmm. Is there a a certain part of that equation that you think is missed when it comes to education? (laughs) All of them?
0: (laughs) Honestly, I think they're all missed because if you walk in to a pastor's office or A lot of biblical counseling offices or whatever with a marriage problem, one of the first things they're gonna ask you is how often do you have sex? Because that's the measure of whether your sex life is good or not. And that is the one big idea that in these books we're trying to debunk. Frequency means nothing because if sex is merely intercourse, which is the way that we tend to think about it, You know, she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be in emotional turmoil. She could be feeling used. She could be feeling coerced and it would still count as having sex. And so we need to get away from this idea that frequency is the issue and increasing frequency will solve the problem. And realize that, you know what, if she doesn't want sex, there's probably reason. Like if I put chocolate cake in front of you, Amy, I wouldn't have to convince you to eat the chocolate cake. Right? I would have to try to convince you to not eat the chocolate cake because chocolate cake is good. Yes. <laughs> well, God made sex to be great. So if we have this epidemic of women not wanting sex, which is the way that that Christian Christians often conceive of it. The solution is not just to tell women you need to eat the chocolate cake, the solutions would say, what's wrong with our chocolate cake that she doesn't want it? Because chocolate cake is supposed to be amazing. (laughs) Yes, what is wrong with the cake? (laughs) You know, and that's what we're trying to get people to see is like frequency is not the problem. And, you know, these books are based on on huge surveys that we did. We surveyed 20,000 women, we surveyed another 3000 men. And what we found is I'm going to list five things for you here. Okay. So when women frequently orgasm, When they feel emotionally connected during sex, when there's high marital satisfaction, when there's no porn use in the marriage, and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency takes care of itself.
1: Was that a surprising find for you? Or did you you just feel like, "I, I would love to just get, I would love to see the numbers and the actual statistics, the results of my survey to verify what you've made. Did you have a hunch on this or were you surprised? This is the one big
0: area I changed my teaching in and I'm almost embarrassed to admit like that's that's embarrassing. I should have known this beforehand. But we're so immersed in this culture that says that women just don't want sex. And so I was really focused on okay, how can we get women to want more sex? How can I how can I convince women to see sex differently and to, you know, um want sex more? And I had never really thought about the orgasm gap. You know, we have a 47-point orgasm gap in evangelicalism, where 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter, and only 48% of women do. So that's a 47-point orgasm gap. Yeah. You know, why Why would we want it? Let me, let me tell you the story of Doug and Tracy, okay? So this is in our books, Doug and Tracy going out for dinner. Do you remember this one? Yes. Okay. Yes imagine we have a couple, and what this couple has been told their whole life is that in order to feel loved, what Tracy needs is to go out to dinner once a week to a restaurant. This is very important for their marriage. And so they dutifully go to a restaurant every week, and and one week they walk in, and they, they get seated, and they give their order, and they start talking, and they're just having a great conversation, and the waitress arrives with Tracy's appetizer. It's a lovely French onion soup, and she digs. In and she finishes it and she declares it delicious, but nothing comes for Doug. They continue to talk. They're dreaming about where they're gonna go on vacation next year. They're talking about their memories from when they were dating. And then Tracy's steak arrives with peppercorn sauce and she slathers the sour cream on the baked potato. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just it's just a perfect medium rare. She loves this. She declares it scrumptious. And then the waitress comes with Tracy's molten lava cake. For dessert, And she puts her spoon in and the chocolate pools in the spoon so beautifully and she's gushing and she's eating it. And as she's almost finished, the waitress finally comes with Doug's chicken wing appetizer. And he (laughs) eats one chicken wing and then another and then Tracy stands up and says, Oh, that was a delicious meal. I just love coming here with you. And she walks to the door. And so Doug (laughs) follows looking forlornly at the four chicken wings still on his plate. If they do this week after week for years, how much is Doug going to like going to restaurants? Yeah. And yet when it comes to sex, that's what a lot of women have been going through. And we've been told by Christian resources, that's okay because all you really need is the closeness. Mm -hmm. That's all you're really interested in. You know, in love and respect, Emerson Egrich said that if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. Hmm. And that husbands need physical release, while women need emotional release, whatever that means, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, you know, and Shanti Felden said, and for women only, that you know, men need to feel like you want them. Like you're enthusiastic about sex. They don't just need release, which is good. That's actually true. But then she says, if you can't physically respond, let your words be heart words, affirming and adoring to him. So, so if you're not enjoying it, you still need to really encourage him and make him feel like he's a good lover. Hmm. But why does she never say that you can speak up and say something like a little to the left? Like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know? And and she even says, you know, if you're if you are finding it difficult to enjoy sex, you should go see a counselor. But the number one reason women don't feel good during sex is lack of foreplay. Hmm. I'm not saying a counselor can't help. Often there are sexual trauma issues or um, there's just ideas about sex we need to deconstruct. Those can be very, very important too. But the number one reason is
1: lack of foreplay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's because men are selfish or do you think they just don't know?
0: I think they don't know. And that's what we're trying to call, that's what we're trying to say in the book is, look, guys, you can totally rock your wife's world but you just need to know this is a thing yeah. because we are told in the church that men have needs that women don't. And we grow up hearing women here, you need to be the gatekeeper because if you're making out, (laughs) he's going to reach a point of no return. So you need to make sure you put the brakes on um, because he can't help it. So you can help it, but he can't Mm -hmm. because he's the one with the sex drive. Um, And we hear this constantly. Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music says that your period is a difficult time for your husband.
1: I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I not question? Why didn't I think? uh, I feel like that's a difficult time for me. Um, You know, so this is
0: what we're growing up with. Mm -hmm. And so when you get married and let's assume you've been waiting for sex. You know, you have intercourse and he feels amazing and you don't. And this can go on for a while and it just seems like, well, I guess I'm just not sexual. I guess I'm just broken. And that's what our findings found too. Like um, we asked both men and women, does he do enough foreplay? And when she frequently reaches orgasm, like 90% of both say, yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. He does enough foreplay, which makes sense, right? But when she doesn't reach orgasm, 71% of guys still say they do enough foreplay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but so do 52% of women. So enough for what? Like
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the women are like it must be me. It must be me. That's mm-hmm. exactly it.
0: Because mm-hmm. we we've never been taught that you know our pleasure matters just as much and we were created to be just as sexual. Mm-hmm. Um but our bodies work differently, and we don't we don't always understand the sexual response cycle, and that that's true even if she's the higher libido wife. Lots of yeah. higher libido wives never reach orgasm. Higher libido does not mean you're guaranteed to reach orgasm. <laughs> yeah. um, because if he doesn't understand how her body works, if she doesn't understand how her body works, then we can just start to feel like
1: we're broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's such a it's such an important thing, especially for a woman who is, you know, a virgin to understand that it isn't unusual for a first time encounter to be uncomfortable. Talk to your doctor ahead of time too. I think that's one of the best things that I did was like, before I got married, I actually had my first pelvic exam and she's like, you know what? I can't even really do a pelvic exam right now. And so here's what you need to know. And, and I was like, this is great to know not that it was like making me dread having mm-hmm. sex with my husband. She's like, "But you know what? It's going to hurt a little bit right away just because of the way your body is right now." Um, but to stay in touch with her about that. And I don't know if any very many men before they get married have that conversation with their fiance that says, "You know, we're going to we're going to figure this out." but there may be a little bit of pain initially, especially if you're a virgin, it's, it's not unusual. Now I would say that continuation of pain is going to be something Mm -hmm. you need to address. And I know you've done a little bit, you've done quite a bit of talking about pain in when it comes to intercourse.
0: Yeah, because evangelical women suffer from vaginismus at twice the rate of the general population. So 22% of evangelical women have suffered from a sexual pain disorder where the muscles in the vaginal wall contract, which makes sex really painful, if not impossible. And again, at least twice as much as the general population. This is our problem. And one mm-hmm. of the things we, we were trying to do, one of the reasons that we did 20,000 women and not just 5,000 was because we wanted enough women with vaginismus that we could drill down and figure out why. And a lot of the reason is the obligation sex message that we give to women, that you're obligated to have sex when he wants it. And if you think about it, the wedding night is the perfect storm of all of these things oh, because yes. you're exhausted, first of all, You've had the most stressful week of your life leading up to your wedding. Chances are, um, and you don't know you're feeling nervous, but then you also feel incredibly obligated because now you have to, even if you've been looking
1: forward to sex. I mean, your it whole is life, the wedding night.
0: Yeah, <laughs> now you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what we we have a chapter at the end of both the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex and the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex where we talk about how to do the honeymoon differently. Because here's here's a stat that a lot of Christians aren't going to like but we looked at couples who had only had sex with each other. Okay. So no other partners and we controlled for abuse. So that wasn't a factor. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you had, if a couple had sex for the first time after the wedding, they were 25% more likely to experience vaginismus than if they had sex before the wedding. I'm not arguing that we should all have sex before the wedding. That's yeah. not the point. The point is what we are doing isn't working. We're doing something yeah. wrong. And I think what we're doing is we're missing the sexual response cycle, which is just the natural progression of how sex is supposed to go. How yeah. You know, you're just, you're cuddling and you're feeling warm and fuzzy towards each other. And then you start to get excited when you start to kiss and then you start to get aroused and then you start to go for like the erogenous zones. Well, we often do is we read these sex manuals that tell us that, you know, she wants to be rubbed for eight minutes like this. And then you do this 237 times. And so, (laughs) you you know, you start sex and you go right for the erogenous zones and it feels like a pap smear. It feels really invasive because she's Mm -hmm. not at all aroused yet. And so understanding how to work with her body is really important. And I would just say to women, you know, if it's hurting, at all, like, and if it's really uncomfortable, just stop and and work at getting more aroused. Because I think a lot of us are having sex before we're aroused at all. And if we can stop that, and I know, and 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 there's so much sympathy for men out there. It's like, well, he's waited his whole life; he needs this. But what we found in our survey is if you can if you can do this well at the beginning, you set yourself up for great sex. But if this goes badly, it can take like a decade or two to undo it. So let's not start really, really badly. And I'm not just talking about badly on one night. I mean, if yeah. you get into habits that are really bad, <laughs> where you just assume she's broken, it works for him, and then she just ends up not really liking sex because you never showed her what all the fuss was about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you think that evangelicals in particular have an unrealistic you know, perspective of what they are telling people about your first experience on your honeymoon? Your I think we night?
0: bribed people. I think that's the problem is that our way of getting people to not have sex before the wedding, we do both the carrot and the stick. You know, the stick is, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls. It's just a classic meme, like the the health teacher telling the kids not to have sex, you know. If you have sex, you will get pregnant and you will die. (laughs) Well, for our, for our book that we just finished, it's not out yet. Um, mothers for, for mothers of teen girls called she deserves better. Um, we actually read all of the books that were written for teen girls and they sounded like that over and over again. It it was threatening girls with all these bad things that would happen to them if they had sex before marriage. And then it was also telling them if you wait for marriage, sex is going to be amazing. So you have the, It will be terrible if you have sex now and it'll be amazing if you wait. The problem is there's a lot of single people that are having great sex and the church needs to come to grips with that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: A wedding ring does not guarantee great sex and the lack of a wedding ring does not mean sex is going to be awful. The reason that we wait is not so that sex can be great. We wait wait because we understand sex is something which is sacred and Mm -hmm. we want to give it a certain meaning. And we want it to be something which is truly intimate. There are reasons to wait. But instead of explaining those reasons, we either we bribe people and we threaten people.
1: And and that doesn't tend to work very well. So what do you what would you say men need to understand about the mental load on women? Mm -hmm. I
0: wish I wish guys got this. Um, Eve Rodsky, she's not Christian, but she wrote this amazing book called Fair Play. And I read it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is life changing. And I did a, I did a series on my blog on mental load and it became like one of the biggest series I've ever done, even though it's nothing to do with sex and I tend to be known for sex. Mental load is this heavy feeling that you need to keep track of everything in the family. So... Um, Johnny has to go to karate tomorrow and we need to remember that last week he borrowed Ben's shoes. So those need to be returned. We need to make sure that his uniform is clean. Uh, All of that needs to be in the car and we're going to pick up Nick because Nick's mom is away this week. And so we promised that we would drive Nick to karate. And so we have to leave a little bit early so that we can get Nick, get him to karate, (laughs) you know, and also it's our turn to bring snack this week. So she's remembering all this. And if she says to him, can you, take care of karate this week, what the husband hears is, can I drive my kid to karate? And he doesn't know all of the other stuff that's going into karate. Um, (laughs) and, And so like mental load is keeping track of everything that's going on like when the homework is done, the fact that the science fair project is due next Wednesday, um, but we're going to be out all weekend. And so we need to make sure that we start working on it this week because we won't have time to catch up this weekend because, you know, so-and-so is visiting and there's this picnic after church on Sunday, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that's exhausting. Yeah. And the problem is in the church, uh, we often say that if guys want sex, they need to do more housework. Because that like Emerson Eckert just said that if you want to turn her on vacuum, um, don't try to turn her on, but vacuum. The vacuuming isn't the issue. It's, you know, or, or guys will say, just give me a list. If you give me a list, I'll do it. The list isn't the issue because you're still telling her if she has to make the list, she's still the one who has to remember all of this stuff. And that is exhausting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having all that stuff in your head all the time is exhausting. Um one of the things that we found in our research for in our in our survey for the Great Sex Rescue, which also informed um, these two new books, is that a lot of teachings in the church artificially lower women's libido. So women's libido is lower than it otherwise would be. And when you look at surveys of the general population, more women have the higher libido than in evangelical marriages. Hmm. So it does look like women's libido in evangelical marriages is artificially lowered, and we identified several key beliefs that do that. Um, all men struggle with lust; it's every man's battle. That lowers libido substantially. Um, <laughs> you know, telling women um, that you're obligated to have sex that lowers libido. But so does mental load. You know, if you ask women why don't you want sex, one of the number one things they'll say is they're just exhausted. So my question is: This whole idea that women have the lower libido—if we didn't have the bad teachings, and if mental load was truly even—would women have the lower libido? Mm-hmm.
1: That's a great question. And I question. don't know that
0: they would. I, I'm really curious to see.
1: I don't. I don't know that they would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're created in God's image, and He created men, man and woman, and He created sex, it only makes sense that there wouldn't be this disparity in desire. So that is a very fascinating question. What do men need to understand about why it might be difficult for women to listen to their bodies?
0: If women have been raised from the time they're small, you know, young teenagers, whatever, with this idea that guys will push your sexual boundaries. So you need to be the gatekeeper. You need to make sure he doesn't go further than than, than you want him to, which is very much what we're told. Then when you're in a makeup situation with a guy, um, what's going through his head is, this is fun. I'm having a lot of fun. Let's keep doing this. And what's going through her head is, is he breathing too fast? Where are his hands? Do I need to stop him yet? Do I need to stop him yet? Do I need to stop him yet? <laughs> yeah. So she's not actually inhabiting her body. Um, some women in our focus groups talked about feeling like they were outside of themselves and spectating. Another woman said she felt like she was judging what was happening as opposed to experiencing it. And so we haven't learned how to be embodied. That's the that's the word that that means when your body and your mind Are doing the same thing. They're both part of this experience. And we've learned to separate our minds from our bodies. And so we're often very um, out of touch with what our bodies are experiencing. We don't know how to inhabit our bodies Mm -hmm. because we've been taught our whole lives that our bodies are dangerous, that they cause men to sin, um, that there's a lot of shame here. And then we've learned how to dissociate. During any kind of physical activity, because we're worried that that we're going to get him too excited, and so this this being present can be a very difficult thing for a lot of women to learn. And so, just when you're first married, going back to first principles, make it out for a bit. <laughs> you know, don't go right for the goal all the time. Yeah. Um, spend more time in those beginning phases and let her learn what
1: arousal feels like, because a lot of women don't know. I-, I liked what you had said about when you're dating you know that this is all you get.
0: Yes, so you, that's
1: it too. Yeah, you enjoy that. And then for some reason, you know, cut that out when it comes to after the after the ring is on.
0: Yeah, because, you know, you can make out for three hours when you're dating because you know all you're going to do is kiss. And so you get really, really excited. It's like, it's like, why is it that we don't want teenagers to kiss? Like we're, <laughs> why we're worried about them making out, right? It's not because anyone accidentally has sex. And it's not because kissing is wrong. It's because once you are making out, your body just starts to want to do more. And that's a natural thing. But when we get rid of the making out and we go right for the end zone all the
1: time, you lose the chance for her to feel excited. Mm -hmm. So true or false, good sex begins in the kitchen. And what is maybe problematic about that? Women
0: are attracted by men who are responsible partners. Now, women want a partner in life. They want someone who they feel they can lean on, um, who can also lean on them, that they feel emotionally connected to, and that they feel like we are doing this together. That's what women want. Unfortunately, (laughs) a lot of men don't take ownership of the home. And so instead of feeling like she has a partner, she feels like she has someone else to clean up after. In Love and Respect, Emerson Egrich, for instance, talks about how he leaves wet towels on the bed. And his wife would come to him and would ask him not to do that, and would get progressively more and more angry at him. And he tells this anecdote, and the end of the anecdote is her understanding that this was disrespectful and was causing him not to feel love for her. And so she stopped asking. Hmm. I just want to point out, it takes no more effort to put a wet towel on the ground than it does to put it on the bed. <laughs> like yeah. if you're not going to hang it up, at least don't put it on the bed.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but, but this is the level of advice that we're being given in our bestsellers where nothing is expected of men. Um, there was an article in Focus on the Family that they were advertising recently on their Facebook page where it it talked about women lowering their expectations. And uh, it said that some men do extraordinary things like doing the grocery shopping and putting on a load of laundry. (laughs) It's extraordinary when a man does it. But every woman is going to do it normally. And so this level of expectations on men is very problematic. And it leads to a lot of unhappiness. That's what our surveys found too is women yeah. who don't feel like they have a partner that is that is engaged in the household don't have as much of a libido and they don't have very high marital satisfaction, especially if they also work outside the home, which most women do today. So this idea that sex begins in the kitchen is true if he is a genuine partner. Mm-hmm. But if he thinks if I do the dishes, I will get sex. It actually will backfire, yeah. Because that's treating sex like it's transactional is very dehumanizing.
1: Because if if he does the dishes, and that's what he's thinking, if he's thinking of it as a transactional thing, and for some reason the spouse is not interested, and he feels like he's got a bad deal, yeah. And she feels like well, or obligated, that whole obligation mm-hmm. thing. Well, well, I did the dishes. So being, just being a good, a good guy, a good decent human is going to make your wife more interested because it's going to really, it's going to take some of that load off of her. There's something really attractive about good people. Yep.
0: And that should not be rocket science.
1: Yeah. I mean, we all know people that we have met that are attractive looking, but the more we get to know them, you realize they aren't a good person. They don't look so good to you anymore. Mm-hmm. But that person that you didn't maybe notice initially, but you got to know them more later and they're just a really good person. You're like, Oh, that person is really an att- more attractive to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, so I don't, I would I'd say to guys, don't underestimate the, how, how attractive it is to somebody to just be a good genuine person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to ask you another couple things. Okay. Here's something that blew my mind. The bedtime thing. This seems so, it's just so obvious, but talk to me and, and tell my listeners what you said in the book about bedtimes and how that relates to intimacy.
0: This is one of those things that is such a small change, but it can have monumental impacts. Okay. When I was a little girl growing up, all the adults went to bed at either 10.30 or 11.15. Because at 10.30, the local news was over. It was always on at 10 o'clock. And at 11.15, Johnny Carson's monologue was over on The Tonight Show. And a lot of people would stay up to see Johnny Carson's monologue, and then they would go to bed. And so people either went to bed at 10.30 or 11.15. That was just normal. And everybody did that. Now, there is nothing that is saying, hey this is over now, so it's time to go to bed (laughs) because the internet is just 24 hours. It's no different. Um, And video games are 24 hours. And so most couples don't go to bed together anymore, whereas couples used to. I mean, 150 years ago, couples just went went to bed when it got dark and people slept a lot more than they do today. If you're not going to bed together, chances are Sex isn't gonna happen. It's like the clue game, right? Like yeah. um Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick. Like if you want sex to happen, you need to be in the right room yeah. <laughs> at the right time. You need to be in the library. <laughs> yeah, like, like you need to be in the bedroom with the wife, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. at the right time. And if that's not happening, sex is just more difficult. And every time you put added Every time you make it harder to have sex, mm. it's going to become less frequent, even if you both want it. And so, you know, I would just say to couples, go to bed at the same time. Just go to bed. And if you need to be but up- what at if six, one
1: isn't tired and well, doesn't okay, want to go say,
0: Let's say that one of you needs to be up at 620. Count backwards eight hours. That means you get to sleep at 1020. Okay. So that means we really should be getting to bed at 930 just Mm -hmm. to spend time, you know, maybe you're going to read a chapter of a book, you're going to talk a bit, you're going to make love, head to bed early. And if one of you just isn't tired, it could be that you need a little bit of time to reset your body's clock. But sleep is something that you can learn. And the key is, go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time every day, even on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Because if you start doing that, you're going to stop needing an alarm clock. If you need an alarm clock, you're not sleeping properly, unless you have some reason to be up at four in the morning every now and then, yeah. or unless you're working shift work where, you're, where your sleep is constantly changing. And that's a big issue. Um, but where, where shift work isn't a, a factor, it's really good for your body <laughs> you know, to adjust and learn. And and maybe one of you has different rhythms where you're more awake at night than in the morning, and you might need to jiggle this a little bit. But yeah the more that you can go to bed at the same time. It's such a little change, but it can make a huge difference.
1: This is one of the most important things that Sheila shared, and I want to make sure you don't miss this. What are some myths that you talk about in the book about porn?
0: One of the big things we wanted to look at, in in the women's survey, we really drilled down on vaginismus. In the men's survey, we we drilled down on, on lust and porn to try to get to the bottom of some of this. I'm worried that the way that we talk about porn to men is having the same effect as the way we used to talk about purity culture to girls Mm -hmm. in the height of purity culture. We were telling girls, if you have sex, your life is ruined. You'll never get it back. You've lost something precious. You've lost your biggest gift. I think the way we talk about porn to guys is like, if you have watched porn, you will never have proper sexuality. Mm. You've lost something precious. And we've become very defeatist and shaming about it. And so we wanted to look at what's really going on. I believe porn, we need to have a zero tolerance policy about porn. I believe porn is extremely harmful if for no other reason than it contributes to sex trafficking. And in many cases, it is sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe there are real victims in porn, even in so-called consensual porn. Uh, And I just do not think it is ethical in any way. I think in the church, we talk too much about the sin of porn as if the main victim is the person watching porn, and yeah. we forget that there's a real victim. Yeah. Um, and I think if we talked about that more, I think teenagers would understand more the harms of porn. That being said, <laughs> what we did find is that if you, if a guy quits porn before the wedding, his sex life is almost as good as if he'd never used it. It's basically statistically equivalent. Hmm as long as he also quits the pornified style of relating. So as long as he also gets rid of the obligation sex message Mm -hmm. and some of these toxic teachings. So it's not like you will always be messed up. And I think we need to say that more to guys and not have such a hopeless thing. Um, We also found that among married evangelical men, I think it was like 49.6. So basically 50% of guys are currently using porn in some way. Most rarely or in intermittent binges, but they're currently using porn in some way. That's lower than the general population. And I often hear stats like 80% of pastors use porn. We need to stop saying that because it makes it sound like everybody is using porn. Mm-hmm. And if everybody's doing it, then there's no way to stop it. Yeah, you know. And it's also not true. I think it was 82% of guys under the age of 30 have used porn over okay. their life. But it doesn't mean they're currently using porn if they're married, and so you know it is very possible to not use porn, and we (laughs) we need to tell guys that. Like if you're using porn, you need to stop because half guys don't use it, so stop it. And the other the other big one is that porn use is not caused by women not having sex.
1: Hmm.
0: Every man's battle tells guys. If you're trying to quit lust and porn, transfer your sexual desire to your wife. And it tells women, at least the older version did. I haven't read the newer version. Came out after Great Sex Rescue was written. But it tells women that even if you don't want to, you need to do the right thing and give him release. Because you're the methadone for him. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Which is so disgusting and dehumanizing. And I don't know how that book series ever sold 4 million copies when it treated women like that. But okay. But the idea is that if you watch... If you if you have sex with him, he won't watch porn. Gary Thomas wrote a post um, shortly before his book Married Sex was out last year, where he talked about how women can help him fight porn by having more sex. He had to take the post down because of the outcry,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it was essentially blaming her for him watching porn because he couldn't he couldn't fight the temptation without the sexual release. The vast majority of porn users started watching porn before the marriage. It Mm -hmm. has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with her. And porn and sex are not substitutes for one another. Because sex is a deep knowing of someone. Yeah, Porn is a using of someone or something for your own gratification. They're polar opposites. They're not substitutes. And if he has a pornified style of relating, as Andrew Bauman calls it, if if he believes the obligation sex message, thinks that he's entitled to sex, thinks that you need to have sex to stop him from watching porn, no wonder she doesn't want to sleep with him. That's incredibly dehumanizing and is going to make her feel used and abused rather than loved and cherished. Hmm.
1: That's such a great point. And, and that every man's battle you know, even just the title of that seems to normalize porn
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a way that I, I don't know that it, you know, and wh- like what you said, how can you fight it if everybody's involved in it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's nowhere in the Bible. Yeah. Absolutely nowhere. Paul tells us to put
0: lust to death. Mm-hmm. That is the expectation. And yet in in evangelical circles, we are told that this is something all men struggle with. We Mm -hmm. actually measured this um, in our survey. So we asked guys, do you have a daily struggle with porn? 75% of men said yes, they do. Okay, so 75% is pretty high. Not 100% though, it's not Mm -hmm. every man. But we also asked guys, we gave them um, several different scenarios. You know, a waitress uh, with a lot of cleavage, a woman bending over, um, someone in very provocative clothing, you know, I think we had four or five different scenarios. And we said in these scenarios, what is the most likely thing you would do? And we had different options, some of which would qualify as lusting and some of which would not, they would just be noticing that noticing she's attractive, but having it have no bearing on the rest of your day. Mm -hmm. And of the 75% who said they have a daily struggle with lust, pretty much half of them do not lust in any of our scenarios and do not watch porn. So it's like they think they're having a daily struggle with lust, but they're not showing any evidence of it. And I think what's happened is that in the church, we have equated noticing a woman is beautiful Mm -hmm. or being attracted to someone with lusting after them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of guys are feeling a lot of shame just for being men that they should never feel. And think about what happens when you tell 13, 14-year-old boys that if they... Find a girl attractive; they've lusted after her. Yeah, it's going to feel like, well, I can never win
1: this then. Yeah, and that's what we've done to a lot of guys. And that's sad. That's devastating. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of great conversation going on from your book and your study, The Great Sex Rescue, and this other stuff. What's encouraging you these days? Like, what's giving you hope, especially in regard to the, you know, Christian world?
0: It's funny because the Great Sex Rescue really hasn't been covered very much in the in the big Christian media. Yeah. It's been covered a ton on social media, but the biggest outlets haven't covered it. Mostly because we call out specific um, teachers, but people are reading it. Counselors are reading it. Pastors are reading it. If you want to understand the impact of this book, just go to Amazon. <laughs> look up The Great Sex Rescue and read the reviews. I mean, it's amazing what people are saying, that they're finally being set free. That's what's really been encouraging. And the the change that I have seen over the last year is now when people say something that is toxic and harmful, people speak up. They're not taking it anymore. Like the outrage over Gary Thomas's blog post. I mean, that was incredible to see all of those women saying, no, three years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Or when Matthew West put out the song Modest is Hottest last yeah. year. And a lot of people said, no, that's not acceptable. We're not going to blame girls for boys' lust anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and that wouldn't have happened several years ago either. And I think we're just understanding that there have been so many toxic messages in this space And we don't need to take it anymore. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We can speak up and say, no, this stops with me. And that's what's encouraging is seeing people really start to speak up and make change. Um, I've heard from so many people who joined the library committee at their church just so they could get rid of the harmful books, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and replace them with good ones, which is wonderful. And so I think change is happening. I think think we really have turned a corner.
1: I think we are. And I think we're just sort of at the beginning of it. I, I have a lot of hope. For, you know, and not just for our kids, but for, you know, those of us that are already, you know, been married for several years, you know, middle age and, and more senior, I am encouraged by this continual learning and continual seeking for truth and the acknowledgement where we've gotten some things wrong. It's really a great picture of what discipleship actually looks like, you know, and acknowledging that if we believe like we do, that we are imperfect, we have imperfect knowledge. It means that we're going to figure out some things that we had thought were true were not as we continue to, as we continue to continue to learn. And I love how you are leading in this space and so generous with your time and engagement with people. Uh, you are changing people's lives. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Um, was there, is there any other way that we can support you? How can we find you?
0: I'm about to change domains. So it's hard to tell you where to find <laughs> me right now. But if you go to, to love, honor, and vacuum.com, Dot com, to love, honor, and vacuum.com. I'm either still there or it will point you to the new domain. So check me out there. Um, and then the three books, The Great Sex Rescue is really about, it says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them together. And The Great Sex Rescue is scattering stones. We're breaking down the walls. We're saying this is all the toxic teaching that's been in the church. And so many people have found that book really healing. And then The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, the revamped one, and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. Those are gathering the stones together. Mm -hmm. They're saying, okay, what would it look like if we built a healthy sex life from the ground up? And I hope that those two books just become the premarital books now that we give to couples who are just getting married or maybe in the first few years of their marriage so they can start well and avoid all the problems. I mean, I would just love it if in 10 years there isn't a need for the great sex rescue anymore
1: because we've, yeah. we've finished with all the toxic teachings. This wraps up my conversation with Sheila. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Look for Untangled Faith on Instagram and leave a comment on any of the posts regarding today's episode. This week has been an exhausting one for me. Some good things and some stressful things. Our oldest had a birthday. That's a good thing. And our upstairs AC unit stopped working. Not a good thing. And I'm still wrestling with general angst about the right way to do podcasting, especially when it comes to the audience I serve and the content I create. Last week, I listened to the Pantsuit Politics episode, A Chorus of 10,000 Voices, and it really spoke to me. I'll leave a link in the show notes. They talked about cancel culture and social shunning and the constant fear of saying the wrong thing. And I feel this as someone whose aim is to serve people who've been hurt. The attempt to do this perfectly is a burden I'm placing on myself, and I'll just admit that First. But the world does seem ready to devour folks who misstep. So that's my answer to the question you didn't even ask of what's on Amy's mind today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. As always, I'm so grateful for your listening. For more information, check out UntangledFaithPodcast.com. Or if you're into social media, you can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Untangled Faith. And I'm on Twitter as Faith Untangled. This episode is made possible by support from my listeners. Putting a podcast into the world takes time and money. I'm so thankful for those of you who have helped underwrite the costs of hosting, editing, and sharing this content. If you want to find out more about how to support the show, check out patreon.com slash Untangled Faith. For more information about this show and for all the links and show notes for today's episode, visit untangledfaithpodcast.com slash episodes. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next week.